This is an ABC podcast. Hi, from David Rutledge, this is RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone, the program where we give sustained and focused thought to the world of sustained and focused thought. This week we're celebrating a birthday, Monday the 15th of July, marking 100 years since the birth of Iris Murdoch, one of the great figures in 20th century philosophy and literature, although she saw the two disciplines as somewhat distinct from each other. These two branches of thought have such different aims and such different styles and I feel very uh, strongly that one should keep them apart from each other. I mean that is that that when one's writing philosophy one's writing something which is very much more like science in a way than it's it's like literature and um, literature of course has its own rules and its own tricks and uh, philosophy aims to uh, to clarify. In fact, it's essential to philosophy that should be, in some sense, clarification. And uh, literature is very often mystification. And uh, besides, literature is for fun. Literature entertains. Literature does many, many things. And philosophy does one thing. Well, today we're exploring the contours of Iris Murdoch's intellectual formation and philosophical vision. And Scott Stevens is our guide. Iris Murdoch was a most unusual philosopher, a maverick even, and that's saying something, given that the 20th century was a century marked by intellectual upheaval, political trauma, and an astonishing degree of philosophical innovation. It's with good reason that one of the world's most distinguished moral philosophers has argued that Iris Murdoch unsettled the entire task of moral philosophy. She redrew the map of what the moral terrain is meant to be. Cora Diamond is Keenan Professor of Philosophy Emerita at the University of Virginia. She says that Iris Murdoch's distinctive intellectual path can be traced back to her rather unusual tutelage at Oxford University, when dominant figures like Alfred Ayer had been conscripted into the British Army in the 1940s. She was taught by... Donald McKinnon, who was part of a group of philosophers associated with as were the, the new developments in philosophy at that time. McKinnon was obviously an extremely interesting and deep man and ideally suited to inspire Murdoch. Why he was teaching Iris Murdoch is that um, there was war going on, and quite a lot of the teaching during the war Um, was thrown onto the few men who did not go off to war. And McKinnon was the sort of man you would not want handling a rifle. He was in the sort of home guard or whatever it was, and he was available then to do teaching when very few male dons were, and there were very few female dons anyway doing philosophy. So Donald McKinnon clearly supplied a rather unorthodox intellectual climate within which Murdoch first began to orient herself philosophically. But I wonder how much real influence he had on her thinking. I'm not sure exactly how much of a difference it might have made because she wasn't much developing as a philosopher as an undergraduate, I don't think. So I don't know how inspiring McKinnon was. Much of the way she develops as a philosopher um, has more to do with the way she and some of the other young women, including Philippa Foote and Elizabeth Anscombe and their friend Mary Mitchley, it has to do with the ways in which they were also talking among themselves and reacting against 
some of the um, philosophy that they assumed was going on. A prevailing philosophical line of thought in Oxford at the time was that moral values were thought to be a function of the preferences or choices of the individual made against a certain background of appreciation of the, of the facts. That's Chris Cordner, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Melbourne. And moral philosophers, influenced by broader philosophical trends of a positivist kind uh, that had become very prominent both on the continent and in England in the 1930s and 40s. And one of positivism's central commitments was the thought that the only uh, sensible propositions that could be affirmed or asserted or held uh, were those of the natural sciences and of everyday observation and about everyday matters of fact that were commonly perceivable uh, recognisable by all and that could be appropriately proven by reference to the circumstances that could be recognised by anybody who turned their attention to them. To but this is something that Iris Murdoch herself described as an empirically available world. Yes. There's no real yes. debate about the nature of things or about common experience. These things are simply available to us. What matters then is the preference chosen by the preferring will. Yes, thank you. You've put that very well. That view is prominent in Oxford at the time under different versions. There were emotivist theories of ethics that said uh, roughly when I say something is morally wrong, if I say it's morally wrong to lie, I'm saying boo to lying. I'm just expressing my affective opposition to lying. In other versions of this view, uh, a very prominent one by a man called Richard Hare, moral judgments were expressions of my preferences, but they included an injunction from me to others to share the same preferences. Mm. He recognised that moral judgments have a kind of claim. We use our moral judgments to make claims on other people too, but that was the extent of it. So it was my choices or preferences which I took some steps to try to get others to share with me. Part of this whole story is the idea of the distinction between factual judgments and evaluations where the people who are doing philosophy of ethics, many of them, take for granted that distinction between fact and value, and it goes with the idea that there are descriptions of the world within which we act. We share that common world within which we act, but we have different attitudes towards it or emotions about it which shape our judgments about what to do. So that's a kind of picture of moral life that Murdoch is reacting against. She's certainly trying to make it complicated in a kind of way. It's not just that we see different facts, but we have even different ideas of what it is to live in a world of facts. We might not even think of it in that kind of way. And that comes out in the differences in the kind of way one might make use of a concept like mystery, which she does bring up as a marker of the way in which people's thought may differ from other people's thought. For some people, the notion of, of mystery is um, important in their understanding of the world in which they live and which they, in which they have to act. And for other people, um, there is essentially a wish to banish that kind of term altogether and to, to think of the world as straightforwardly describable. So what does it look like when Murdoch first begins to strike off on her own path as a philosopher? 
There are a number of early essays in which her ideas are beginning to take shape. In two essays called The Sovereignty of Good and the Idea of Perfection, and a third essay called On God and Good, which were all published together as a kind of setting out of her agenda in those uh, essays. At the start of The Idea of Perfection, she locates herself in relation to G.E. Moore, uh, who was a very influential figure at the start of the 20th century in British philosophy. What Murdoch took from Moore was the importance of his insistence that good was a genuine reality. Her first move in that essay is via G.E. Moore, but she moves fairly quickly from G.E. Moore's insistence on good as an objective property of actions, circumstances, people, uh, she moves fairly quickly from there to talk about Plato as someone whose understanding of the good, often under the aegis of the form of the good in Plato, is a, an absolute and transcendent reality. And our, our life as moral beings is involves our attempts to orient ourselves in progressively better ways towards that reality. One thing Murdoch takes very much over from Plato is his emphasis on on love in its different forms and operating at what Plato would call its different levels in our life. And she shares with Plato the view that love is of its nature a relating of us to the good, even if the character of our relating to the good can be infected and deformed even by various aspects of the way in which we actually live our loves. A very important part of Murdoch's story is that there is a kind of depth in moral reality, or to put it another way, moral reality is reality understood in relation to its depth. On RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone, where we're exploring the work of Iris Murdoch, who, had she not died in 1999 and was still alive today, would be turning 100 years old this week. Our guests are Christopher Cordner at the University of Melbourne and Cora Diamond at the University of Virginia, and they're speaking with Scott Stevens. We sometimes think of moral concepts as tools of evaluative judgment that we can apply to the world from above, as it were, as though we're standing outside the world looking into it. But Iris Murdoch saw moral concepts as something embedded, as part of our moral orientation to the world, part of our struggle to see the world truly. What she means by moral concepts includes, for example, the significance of not taking oneself to be on top of the factuality of things. So concepts are not only little things like, as it were, taking courage to be an important kind of moral concept, but also thinking of oneself as living in an intelligible world or not is something that counts for her as a significant kind of moral conceptual configuration. There's something in which she is drawing there on Plato, who's very important for her, obviously, but the way in which any concept on which we draw can be something which has more to it than we have so far yet seen. One background idea there that's also in play is that much is obscured to me because there are ways in which I evade knowing how things really are, and there are ways in which 
my infatuation with myself, my concern with myself, my desire for the things I desire, makes me all too likely to not see what is going on around me. And this is, of course, illustrated by the kind of, the example of the mother and the daughter-in-law and the way in which the mother's conception of herself has gone with a not seeing of the daughter-in-law, a way of seeing her as that's tied in with her own snobbish conception of herself and what she had hoped for. Ah, yes, the famous example of the mother and daughter-in-law. This is a fictional scenario that does a lot of work in Murdoch's thinking. It goes something like this. There is a mother whom Murdoch calls M, and she feels a fair degree of hostility towards her daughter-in-law called D. M finds D a good-hearted girl, not exactly common, but certainly unpolished, lacking in dignity and refinement. She's pert and familiar, Murdoch says. She's sometimes rude. She's always juvenile. M doesn't like D's accent or the way she dresses. In essence, she feels that her son has married beneath him. But being polite and being unfailingly correct in her behavior, M behaves beautifully towards D, Murdoch insists. She gives no sense of how she really feels. Whatever is in question as happening, says Murdoch, happens entirely in M's mind. Time passes. M's son and daughter-in-law perhaps move away. And M's sense of D hardens. My poor son has married a silly, vulgar girl. But being an intelligent, well-intentioned person, someone who's capable of self-criticism, of giving careful and just attention to an object, M tells herself, I am old-fashioned and conventional. I may be prejudiced and narrow-minded. I may be snobbish. I'm certainly jealous. Let me look again. But the significant choice after the after she realizes something about her own situation, the significant choice is to try to re-see the reality of the girl. What is seen can undergo a transformation so that you see it in a different way. And the seeing in a different way, so far as the seeing is a love and just seeing, becomes a truer seeing. Murdoch has quite a lot to say about what in virtue of which it's a truer seeing and not simply a different seeing. And one of the things she says in that connection is that our everyday seeing is often a seeing through our our prejudices, our uh, lack of attention, our selfishness, our self-defensiveness, our fear. All of these things help determine what we see in such a way that what we see isn't really what is there, but what is there obscured, distorted, blurred by the projection of what Murdoch calls as a general name for all of this, the fat, relentless ego onto the the scene where we're responding to so that we see projections of our ego rather than the reality before us. So that one of the central tasks of the moral life for Iris Murdoch is to come to see the world and those around us truly, or as Cora Diamond puts it, being able to get free of, get clear of 
the kinds of ways in which self-things cloud the capacity to see the world. The effect of all this, the primacy that Iris Murdoch gives to the task of seeing the world and others justly and lovingly, is in effect to shift the center of gravity in the moral life away from the moment of moral decision or choice that has long preoccupied moral philosophers. Murdoch puts things this way at at one point, and this is a formulation that lots of people have had problems with. She says, contrary to the view that the moment of moral significance is the moment of choice, that's when I'm, as it were, really morally at stake. Murdoch says, um, if I attend to the world in a genuinely loving and just way, the reality it discloses to me will be such that the choice is made for me. Assertion is me, as it were, providing the, the thrust of what's happening in the circumstance. Moral action or response comes about as my receptiveness to the scene and what I recognise to be its requirements upon me, and my responding with obedience to that uh, demand upon me that, that I recognise as inescapable in this context. It's hard to overstate the implications of Iris Murdoch's connection that she draws between the world we see and the moral actions we take. This is how Murdoch puts it in her book, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. Knowledge informs the moral quality of the world. The selfish, self-interestedly casual or callous man sees a different world from that which the careful, scrupulous, benevolent, just man sees. Murdoch goes even further than this. By virtue of their seeing different worlds, such people also end up living in different worlds. The idea of people living in a different world is very, very important. And this is not just that they they see different facts, but um, it's an understanding of even what factuality comes to. If we see speak of people living in different worlds, there is also the, the question, what is it to get somebody to see a world that he hasn't seen? And it's this task, the difficult task of enabling people to see a world they haven't seen, a world that no longer has the self at its center, a world where the distorting effects of the fat, relentless ego have been set aside. This, for Iris Murdoch, is perhaps the preeminent task of great art. Why? Because for Murdoch, one of the defining qualities of great art is, of all things, art's impersonality. But art is impersonal for Murdoch in a very peculiar sense. The impersonality of great art is not independent of, um, let's say, Tolstoy's great art is not independent of his being Tolstoy, in particular with his kind of way of thinking about human beings and human life. So if one talks about the impersonality of great art and thinks of Tolstoy, then that's quite different from thinking about the impersonality of great art. If you have in mind you know, somebody like Shakespeare, this is not an impersonal concept of impersonality, if one might put it that way. Another source of what she is saying about impersonality is Simone Weil, and the kind of way in which, for Simone Weil, even something like 7 plus 5 is 12 is going to be something which one meets up with 
in a kind of way in which one's self has nothing to do with it. One is aware of something that is real and independent of oneself, which one is called on to recognize as real. Maybe the best way of thinking about the character or quality of great art is that it lets us see a world that doesn't exist for us, a world that doesn't exist for our use or even for our pleasure. Great art, in other words, displaces the ego from the center of things, which is why, for Murdoch, great art is a kind of work of love, or as she would put it in an essay called The Sublime and the Good, love is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. Love is the discovery of reality. But of course, not even great artists are immune from the distorting effects of the self and of its habitual neediness. In the case of Tolstoy, there are cases where one thinks he's intruding in a kind of way, that he isn't being, as it were, the great artist who is impersonal in the relevant sense. There are all kinds of things that are his obsessions that are leading him to put a thumb in the scales in, in some way or other in what he is writing, which make for problems in some of the things he writes. So one is aware with Tolstoy of cases which work and cases in which there is the impersonality of great art. There are cases where there is Tolstoy's neediness as a human being that intrudes. All that one can do, perhaps, is try to look at that case and other cases of great art and to see whether one can see what Iris Murdoch is trying to draw to our attention in the unselfing of a vision of the world. But of course, unusually among 20th century philosophers, Iris Murdoch was also an accomplished and an acclaimed novelist. I wonder how successfully she practiced that moral task of attentiveness to the reality of the world and that just and loving attention to others in her novels. The crucial word there is the word attention. In her work as a novelist, she is clearly, um, in many ways, attentive to the variousness and the extraordinariness of features of human life. I was thinking of one particular case at the beginning of The Bell, in which the young woman is in a train, and she decides that she's not going to get up and give her seat to an old lady who is a friend of another old lady in the compartment. And in some sense, it would be nice to get up and give her seat to this old lady, but she's not going to do it. She's decided not to do it. And then she does. She gets up and she gives the lady her seat. And the kind of way Murdoch is attentive to that bit of practical thinking is wonderful. I mean, it's just... Um, a bit of attention to the variety of ways in which action and understanding of one's situation plays out in a particular tiny bit of a human life. Her attention to the way that young woman is thinking about that action and the way Murdoch wants to invite us as philosophers to attend to what action and thinking about action and the thought that precedes any thinking about action. She wants us to attend to these things as moral philosophers, but I think 
you can see the, the kind of attention that's necessary, even in that very funny example at the beginning of the bell. Despite all this, there are, of course, criticisms to be made of Murdoch herself about whether the practice of attention to others that she commended in her work was simply too intellectual, too sterile, that it presumed a safe distance from the other person, that it ruled out the kind of genuine encounter with another that we find in the work of someone like Martin Buber. So it's worth noting, for example, that in the case of M and D, M changes her mind about her daughter-in-law only after her daughter-in-law has moved away. Is this one of those instances where the temperament of the philosopher compromises their better insights? Or is there a deeper philosophical failure at play here? I think to some extent one can see resources in Murdoch's thinking for allowing us as readers to say, well, she misses this or doesn't emphasise that and is inclined to dismiss the importance of or, or not take sufficient account of the importance of the tenderness and love that she thematised in her work. But we, as Murdochian scholars and beneficiaries, one can, to a significant extent, take over her thinking and adapt it in ways that can free it from her own temperamental limitations in uh, her articulation of it. But here there's, there's one further thing I think is important to say here. I don't think one can do that completely. And one reason why not is that I, I think another serious question about her work concerns the relation between the influence of Plato upon her and her recognition of the, the importance of uh, various themes that have been best articulated often in Christian uh, thought, sometimes theology and very often practice. Murdoch is not a Christian herself. At one point she describes herself as a Buddhist fellow traveller, but she's, she's insistent upon the illuminating power of a great deal of Christian thinking, including Christian emphasis on, on love. Plato, of course, has love as central too, but I do not see anywhere in Plato a recognition, let alone an insistence upon something that is utterly central to Christian thinking and practice. That is the absolute, sacred, unconditional value of the individual human being. So I, I think some of Murdoch's insensitivity to the absolute importance of responding to this person in this context with the right kind of loving attention. Tenderness is not a concept in Plato at all. So I think the limitations in Murdoch that I think are temperamental limitations are also uh, reinforced by, if you like, her attachment to Plato in a way that includes uh, manifesting some of the same limitations as Plato to an extent and in a way that partly disables her from allowing its full space and voice in her work to those themes that get a much better recognition or acknowledgement in Christian thinking and practice. Christopher Cordner, Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Melbourne, and you also heard there Cora Diamond, who's Keenan Professor of Philosophy Emerita at the University of Virginia, and they were speaking with Scott Stevens. And that brings us to the end of the program for this week. You've been with The Philosopher's Zone on RN and you can find us anytime via the ABC Listen app or the RN website. 
Thanks for your company. I'm David Rutledge. See you next time. <laughs>